Joshua chapter 5. Before we dive into a few verses, I want to create the context and the scene to help you, again, wrap your mind about what's going on. Because last week was Easter and we took a week off from the narrative. I'm going to keep this broad and general, so hang on, here we go. Egypt, where Israel was for 400 years, is a picture of the world. It is a spiritual picture of the world. God's children were in Egypt. When they were called out of Egypt by Moses and passed through the Red Sea, that is a spiritual picture of getting saved, of becoming born again by the Spirit of God of the blood washing us from our sins, of the Passover lamb. We claim his blood, and the death angel passes over us, and we are free. Hallelujah. We are saved. Never lose the freshness of that thought, I'm saved. But that's not, well, it's, it's enough, but if that's all you know, you haven't gone far enough. Because leaving the Red Sea launches us out into the wilderness, the dry desert. The dry desert is a picture of the Christian, saved, trying to live the Christian life by their own efforts. By praying and studying and church attendance and trying to be a good Christian. Trying to suppress whatever sin pops up. All that effort is nothing but failure and defeat. God's plan and destiny is for you to march to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Manna's pretty good stuff, but it gets old after a while. Milk and honey's in the land. So the first time they went up to the Jordan, they hadn't had the faith to understand that God had already given them the land. The promised land is not heaven. It's not. The promised land is a picture of spiritual victory. And I mean real victory. Not a suppression of the sin and flesh within us, but our cutting off and full victory over it by the power and strength of his life in us. That's victory, man. When you can turn the other cheek and there's nothing in your heart that wants to slap that dude back, that's victory. When you can be talked about and you love that person that's slandering you and you have no ill against them, you say that's impossible. I say, yes, it is impossible. Except for the love of Christ and the life of Christ and that entering into that land, if you will. So the first time they didn't have the faith and so they were sent back for 38, 40 years total in the desert. This is a picture of the long period of time that a Christian will spend trying to be a good Christian, trying religion. My time in the desert was 18 years. Maybe your time is shorter or longer. Maybe you're still there. But after 18 years, I'd had enough of trying to be a good Christian, and I began to read some good books that showed me some things in the Scripture that not only Christ had died for me, but I had died with Him. I was dead with Christ, buried with Christ, now alive with Christ. Crossing over the Jordan is a picture of God cutting off 
the believer from the flesh. Not, that those, not, not so that sin will die, because sin will never die. It will always be a part of us in this body. But that I am cut off from the power of that sin, that I might have victory. See? It's not me dying to sin, it's me having already died to sin by my understanding of my co-crucifixion, my crossing over into Jordan. Are everybody there? Everybody with me? This is what the moment is. They've crossed over, and I want you to see that it was on the 10th day of the month. You'll see that back in chapter 4. In fact, let me go ahead and reference it, verse 19. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Why is that significant? Well, first of all, the first month of the year, God changed. Do you know that? It's not the Egyptian calendar that held the Jews on their counting. God, when he took them up out of Egypt, said, no, Nisan will be the first month, which is our April slash March. It bleeds into two different months. Basically, March was God's first month. That's what he told them. On the 10th day of the month, by the way, when he saves you and takes you up out of Egypt, it's a brand new, it's a brand new calendar. Do you know that? We don't count ourselves by anything that ever happened in the past. It's gone. I got saved when I was 19, so I got history. I got stuff in my past. You know how much stuff Karen knows about my past? We've been married a long time. <laughs> you know how much she knows? Zero of the bad stuff. I have never told her. You know why? Because it does not exist anymore. I figured if it doesn't exist in the mind and heart of God, it doesn't exist for me anymore. All that's gone. I got a new calendar. When God saves a person, he gives them a brand new calendar. Day one, month one. Day 10, first month. That is when, back in Egypt, God cho- told the Israelites, go get a lamb. Now, lambs were pretty easy to find down in Egypt because one of the gods of Egypt was the ram. Sheep were plentiful. I find it comical that God would use one of the gods of Egypt to sacrifice as a little lamb. He told those Jews back down in Egypt 40 years before, on the 10th day of the month, follow this, go get you a lamb. Now, they were to bring that lamb into their homes for four days. On the 14th day of the month, they were to sacrifice that lamb, and that was the Passover. They marched out of Egypt on the 15th day of the month, the day after the Passover that night. Now follow this. Four days that lamb was to stay in that home of those people. Why? Because the Bible says they had to examine it to make sure there was no blemish. But I ask you this question. How long does it take to examine a lamb for a blemish, for a wound, for a mark, for something that it wasn't perfect? How long does it take? Does it take four days? I think not. I think 20 minutes will do it. 
Why four days? Because four days in the home, that lamb would become a pet to the children, and that family would become attached to that lamb. The lamb would become their lamb. Uh, Andrea is raising chickens wherever she's at. She's raising chickens, and so I'm a big chicken fan, and so I'm excited for her raising chickens. So when I found out, I said, well, great. I said, you haven't named them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she went on to the, the Sarah and, Bur- Bur- you know, just all the names. I said, well, I'm pretty sure they're not going to end up in a pot with the dumplings, probably. And you're not going to fry any of them because once you name an animal, you're not going to eat it. That baby lamb became a part of their family and became attached. You know when you get saved is when the Savior becomes your Savior. And you have a personal attachment to him. See that? So this lamb for four days becomes part of the family. And here the lamb is crucified. The lamb is killed. And the blood smeared on the signpost. These are beautiful pictures. So we, 40 years later, the Jews get to the land, and amazingly, they cross over on the 10th day. By the way, on a side note, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month. And for four days, he was examined by the, by the religious crowd and the people of, to see if there was any. Four days, they had not only to examine him to see if there's any blemish, but for he and the city of Jerusalem to become attached to that city. Same thing. But I want you to notice a difference. Notice verse 19 of chapter 4. We'll get to chapter 5 in a minute. The people came out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first day, and they camped at Gilgal. They were on the east border of Jericho. One more note, and then we'll dive into chapter 5. Back in Egypt... When the 10th of the month came, they had not crossed the Jordan yet. This was in preparation. I'm sorry, they had not crossed the Red Sea yet. But now the 10th of the month comes, and they had already crossed the Jordan. So I ask you, why isn't it the same order as it was down in Egypt? If it's the same order, the 10th of the month would have been on the west, the east of Jordan. And then after the 10th of the month, they would have crossed over. But here they cross over, and now it's the 10th on the west side of the Jordan. Why the difference? Because when we got saved, before you got saved, you saw Christ died for you. But when you cross the Jordan, you see that you died with him. That already occurred when you crossed over the Red Sea. The moment you got saved, you were crucified with Christ. By your believing that doesn't make that true. For all your Christian life, you have been separated from sin. But until you know that, no benefit is brought to you. No victory is given you until you know it. But don't think by discovering that truth and knowing that you're dead with Christ, knowing I've cut off from power, that that somehow knowing it and believing in the experience has made it true. It has always been true with you. Always as a believer. But you, you don't know that 
you can't grow. You never grow in the desert. You never grow on manna. Do you know that when Rahab took the spies in, the two spies, remember that occasion? She said to him an interesting thing. She said, since the day that you crossed over the Red Sea, and there's a couple other things that happened in the desert, she said. She said, our hearts have been terrified of you. Now, if you'll notice how strange an occasion this is, that for 40 years they'd wandered scared of them, and the whole time they were terrified of them. Isn't that amazing? When you got saved, a radical, revolutionary thing occurred in your heart, and all the demons trembled, and all the darkness was terrified, and the sins that so easily beset all of us quiver by the life of Christ in us. Do you know how powerful he is in you and I? All right, chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1. That's a long introduction. That is no indication of how long the sermon will be, okay? We're just covering the first, really the first verse of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, now stop right there, we know the Amorites, there was at least five kings because in a couple chapters they're going to chase down five of them and defeat all five of them. So there's at least five. So we have two groups that I want to introduce to you in this land. There are the Amorites and then the Canaanites. The Amorites are a product, if you will, of a people that were born out of an incestual relationship between Noah and his younger daughter. When Noah got through the flood, he got drunk, and his two, his wife, two, two daughters got him drunk, and he had sex with both of them. The younger daughter had Ammon, which was the beginning of the Amorite people in sexual situation. All right, the Canaanites, they came from Noah's grandson, Canaan. Now, he has an interesting history. He and his father are the two that walked in and discovered their father's nakedness and threw something over him, but something occurred in the transaction that was inappropriate, sinful. Noah pointed it out, and, and Canaan was cursed. Now, this is the origins of these two nations. Amorite, the Amorites, their god was Moloch. Moloch. He was the fire god. Just to let you know what kind of people these were going in. And God gave these people lots of time to repent. Lots of time. He gave them a lot of witnesses. Amorites' god was Moloch, the fire god, who possessed the face of a cow, a bull, with his arms outstretched. His arms were outstretched to receive children into the fire. These Amorites sacrificed their children to this god Moloch. It's a fascinating verse of, of scripture that God describes this, that the Amorites actually 
pass their children through the fire, which is beautiful because even though they sacrificed their children, God was on the other side of that fire, rescuing them, taking them through to heaven with him. It's a beautiful description of God's mercy and grace for these children who were cast into a fire. The God of the Canaanites was Baal, the God of weather, the sun God. Baal worship was a problem all through the land of Canaan and would harass and torment the people of Israel because they didn't drive out the Canaanites as they should. You remember Elijah? When he went up on the mountain, his calling down fire from heaven to just take up was an affront to Baal, the weather god. All right, back to the scripture. So these two groups, both sinful. By the way, these, these generations and these societies and civilizations were advanced. They were sophisticated. They were entrenched. If you'll notice in verse 1, it says that the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, kind of the central of Canaan, central of Palestine, and then all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea along the coast. Jericho was a Canaanite city. Notice when they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over I find it interesting that all they had to do was hear the news. Obviously, they had more reliable networks back there. They didn't even have to see it. This was not fake news to them. This was real news, and it traveled, and they heard. They had heard what God had did, had done, and notice the end of the verse. Their response. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Now, if they had faith, the end of that verse would have read, because of the Lord. But they weren't afraid of the Lord, even though they knew the Lord had dried up the Jordan. They were concentrating on the people. We're going to pause there in the narrative because we're going to be launched on to next week, the topic of circumcision. This is one of the strangest stories in all the Bible. I want you to, I'll just give you a little hint for next week. As they crossed over, all of a sudden they were surrounded by enemies. Surrounded to the north, to the west, all over the place. They were surrounded. This was no time for a mass circumcision. We're going to talk next week the spiritual significance of this moment. We're going to look at the New Testament and Colossians, and we are going to see why God's timing for circumcision in this moment. Fascinating story. Let me close with a couple thoughts. God's timing is always perfect. He brought them in on the 10th of the month. In chapter 5, he's going to do two things, circumcision and the Passover. Before they ever fight a battle, before they ever face the enemy, 
these two great moments are going to occur in their life, both revealing vulnerability to the enemies all around them. God's strength is enough. God's power is enough. God's ways are perfect. The Passover lamb, which will be sacrificed, was all that these people needed. What they carried through that Jordan, the Ark of the Covenant, was what they were keep their eyes on. The victory that took them across the Jordan River was the same victory that would surround Jericho and give them strength to do that. God never makes mistakes. I ask you a question and we'll close. Is he your Passover lamb? Is he yours? Is Christ your Savior? Is he your life? Is he your everything?